ready, people? In five, four, three, two, one. The court. All right, Mr. Marshall. Let the jury come in. In parentheses, the jury enters at 9.37 a.m. In parentheses, the following proceedings were held in the presence of the jury and alternates. The court. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The court wants to thank you for your patience, particularly those of you who have been members of this jury since Monday and Tuesday in waiting while we go through the very serious and important process of selecting a jury to try this case. We will shortly be hearing the opening statements of counsel. These are statements made by the attorneys for each side, or at least for the government. The defendant does not have to make a statement at this time. They may or may not. They may reserve it and make it later. But these are statements made by counsel as to what they anticipate or expect the evidence in the case to show. What the lawyers are now going to tell you is not of itself evidence and will not be considered by you as such, but rather as an outline and sort of a projected or anticipated summary of the evidence which the parties expect to show by their witnesses or exhibits or other evidence in the case. Madam Clerk, you may impanel the jury in this case. Then they will be with the government for its opening statement. Jury impaneled at 9.42 a.m. The court. All right. The government will go first. Opening statement, 9.43 a.m. Mr. Blackburn. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jim Blackburn. I am Assistant United States Attorney with the United States Attorney's Office here in the Eastern District of North Carolina. First of all, this morning, on behalf of the government, I want to express to you our sincere appreciation for your consideration and coming here this week 
for three very long and hot days. And being willing to serve on jury duty. As Judge Dupree told a number of jurors late yesterday afternoon, it is considered that jury service is one of the highest forms of citizenship. And indeed the government, and I am sure the defense are indebted to you for being willing to do that. First, I want to introduce some of the other individuals that you may have seen during the course of the questioning here this week. Over to my right, first, is Jack Crawley who is an assistant United States attorney. He has been in the office for a number of years. Brian Murtag, who is with the Justice Department and has been with them for a number of years. And to my far right, Mr. George Anderson, who is the United States attorney and has been such for about two years. Ladies and gentlemen, during the questioning of each of you, I know at least the very first juror, Judge Dupree read a portion of the indictment against the defendant Jeffrey R. McDonald. It is three count bill of indictment. It was returned by a federal grand jury sitting in Raleigh on January the 24th, 1975. I want to read the first count that on or about the 17th day of February, 1970, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, upon lands acquired for the use of the United States and under the exclusive jurisdiction thereof, and within the Eastern District of North Carolina, Jeffrey R. McDonald, with premeditation and malice aforethought, murdered Colette S. McDonald by means of striking her with a club and stabbing her in violations of the provisions of Title 18, United States Code, Section 1111. That is the first count. The second count reads substantially the same. It changes in only one material aspect. The name of the victim is changed to Kimberly K. McDonald. The third count is also changed in two particulars. 
the striking her with a club and stabbing her to by means of stabbing her. In other words, in the third count, there is no reference to striking Kristen with a club. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the purpose of an opening statement by counsel for both the government and the defense is to sort of lay out to you in some broad brush outline what we are going to show you during the course of this trial. Not in every detail, certainly, but to a general degree where we are going to be going over the next several days. Now, taking any one of the of the three counts which i have mentioned there are certain key elements that the government must prove you may recall that you heard judge dupree instruct you or question you concerning the burden of proof of the government and i know that each of you said that you would be in effect, hold the government to the standard of the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if we did not meet it, you would acquit the defendant. But if we did, then that is a different story. The government does, in fact, have the responsibility for proving to you that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Not any doubt, because it is rarely possible, I think, to prove anything beyond any doubt, but certainly beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't run from that responsibility. We are going to accept that challenge and we intend to meet it during the course of this trial. Now, what is it in each count that we have got to show you? What is it that we have got to prove to you? First of all, we have got to prove, I think, beyond a reasonable doubt that the date in the incident indictment, the 17th day of February, 1970, that the murders of Colette in the first count, Kimberly in the second, and Christian in the third, did in fact take place on those days. Secondly, that they occurred at or on Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Thirdly, that these individuals were killed by someone who did it with premeditation. Next, that someone who killed them did it with malice aforethought. That the means 
that we inserted in the indictment. The clubbing and stabbing in the two cases and the stabbing in the third is the means by which these individuals die. Finally, the government has the responsibility of proving to you beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, the man sitting right there, is the man that killed Colette, Kimberly, and Christian McDonald. That is the burden of proof that the government of the United States has. And that is what we intend to show you at this trial. There are two terms, ladies and gentlemen, in that indictment that might be somewhat foreign to you. I don't know they are. They are foreign to me, strike that. They were foreign to me a long time ago. So they might be to you. Of course, what I tell you is not evidence and I am not empowered to instruct you as to the law. Only the judge can instruct you as to the law. But I suspect that when the time comes for that, he will instruct you with respect to certain key elements in the indictment, premeditation and malice of forethought. What is premeditation? I suspect that the court will instruct you that premeditation is something akin to the formation of a specific intent or a preconceived design to kill, giving thought before acting to the idea of taking a human life and reaching a definite decision to kill. A period of time, no matter how brief, can constitute deliberation. Secondly, malice of forethought. Malice of forethought, I suspect the court will instruct you, means an intent at the time of a killing, willfully to take the life of a human being, or an intent willfully to act in a callous and wanton disregard of the consequences to human life. But malice of forethought does not necessarily imply an ill will, a spite or hatred toward the individual killed. Those two terms, ladies and gentlemen, premeditation and malice of forethought, now, during the long questioning that the court and counsel put you through over the last three days, I know that one question or two questions that you were always asked is, do you understand and agree 
when you have an eyewitness, circumstantial evidence, where there is a chain or a web of circumstances that point unerringly to the fact that a certain individual may have done a certain thing. The case for the government of the United States, ladies and gentlemen, is built primarily on circumstantial evidence. Let me be candid about that. Circumstantial evidence, as his honor instructed you, is regarded by the law just as equally as direct. Now, there are two types of evidence that we are going to put before you during this trial. We are going to parade. I suppose you will think it is a parade by the time it is through. A number of individuals to this witness stand who are going to say certain things. We're going to put in a lot of physical evidence, demonstrative evidence. You may think at times that you're getting yourself burdened down with, I can't remember it all. We're not asking you to take a test on everything we show you. We're not going to give you and ask you to take a test. What we are going to ask you to do is listen to the evidence that comes from the witness stand. Examine the physical evidence as it is shown to you and reach your own conclusion. What is a good example of circumstantial evidence? What am I talking about when I speak of circumstantial evidence? Suppose during the nighttime, you are asleep in your own bed and everything is quiet. And all of a sudden, you are awakened in the middle of the night by a loud crashing sound. You don't pay attention to it. You go back to sleep, but you have heard it. The next morning, when you awaken, you get up. You look outside and you see that it has snowed during the nighttime. And so you go to your back door and you see your two garbage cans, those metal things that clank so loud, both knocked over. You see a set of dog tracks coming to the garage. Can from your neighbor's yard. And you see a set of dog tracks going back to your neighbor's yard and the dog tracks stop where your neighbor's dog is sitting. You can probably assume that that dog had something to do with knocking over those garbage cans. That is circumstantial evidence, ladies and gentlemen. And I believe we've been going for 26 minutes. And I believe maybe we should stop there. I don't want to wear you out. Hello. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? I think Anchor FM is the best. Here's why. With easy and fast setup, 
you'll be a pro in podcasting right out the gate. There is no additional equipment to buy because you can podcast right from your phone, your laptop, or your desktop computer. Anchor has great editing features such as music and even splitting your podcast in sections. And Anchor does all the distribution for you to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Google, and more. And the best part about Anchor is you can make money with no minimum listening audience. So, download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. But um, I am just going to read a little bit of this again at the beginning, and then we'll call it a night. How about that? Let me go back to the beginning of this. And I don't want to go all the way back to the beginning because I'm sure you know that when um, it states, when I say jury enters at 9.37 a.m., parentheses, when I say the following proceedings were held in the presence of the jury and alternates, parentheses, when I say the jury impaneled at 9.42, you know those are going in parentheses. So where we're going to start is when Mr. Blackburn starts to speak. Are you ready? Feet flat on the floor. Let's take a deep breath. Let's let it out. Nice and calm. We're going to write part of this again. And when I say title 18, I want you to put a comma, United States Code, comma, section 111. All right, got that part down. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jim Blackburn. I am Assistant United States Attorney with the United States Attorney's Office here in the Eastern District of North Carolina. First of all, this morning, on behalf of the government, I want to express to you our sincere appreciation for your consideration and coming here this week for three very long and hot days and being willing to serve on jury duty. As Judge Dupree told a number of jurors late yesterday afternoon, it is considered that jury service is one of the very highest forms of citizenship and indeed the government. And I am sure the defense are indebted to you for being willing to do that. First, I want to introduce some of the other individuals that you may have seen during the course of the questioning here this week. Over to my right, first is Jack Crowley, who is an assistant United States attorney. He has been in the office for a number of years. Brian Murtag, who is with the Justice Department and has been with them for a number of years. And to my far right, Mr. George Anderson, who is the United States Attorney and has been such for about two years. 
ladies and gentlemen, during the questioning of each of you, I know at least the very first juror, Judge Dupree read a portion of the indictment against the defendant, Jeffrey R. McDonald. It is a three count bill of indictment. It was returned by a federal grand jury sitting in rally on January the 24th, 1975. I want to read the first count that on or about the 17th day of February, 1970 at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, upon lands acquired for the use of the United States and under the exclusive jurisdiction thereof and within the Eastern District of North Carolina, Jeffrey R. McDonald, with premeditation and malice aforethought, murdered Colette S. McDonald by means of striking her with a club and stabbing her in violations of the provisions of Title 18, United States Code, Section 1111. That is the first count. The second count reads substantially the same. It changes in only one material aspect. The name of the victim is changed to Kimberly K. McDonald. The third count is also changed in two particulars. The victim's name is changed to Christian J. McDonald, and the means of killing her has been changed from, quote, striking her with a club and stabbing her, close quote, to, quote, by means of stabbing her, close quote. In other words, in the third count, there is no reference to striking Christian with a club. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the purpose of an opening statement by counsel for both the government and the defense is to sort of lay out to you in some broad brush outline what we're going to show to you during the course of this trial. Not in every detail, certainly, but to a general degree where we are going to go over the next several days. Now, taking any one of the three counts which I have mentioned, there are certain key elements that the government must prove. You may recall that you heard Judge Dupree instruct you or question you concerning the burden of proof of the government. And I know that each of you said that you would in effect hold the government to the standard of the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if we did not meet it, you would acquit the defendant. 
But if we did, then that is a different story. The government does, in fact, have the responsibility for proving to you that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Not any doubt, because it is rarely possible, I think, to prove anything beyond any doubt, but certainly beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't run from that responsibility. We are going to accept that challenge and we intend to meet it during the course of this trial. First of all, we have got to prove, I think, beyond a reasonable doubt that the date in the indictment the 17th day of February, 1970, that the murders of Colette in the first count, Kimberly in the second, and Christian in the third, did in fact take place on those days. Secondly, that they occurred at or on Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Thirdly, that these individuals were killed by someone who did it with premeditation. Next, that someone who killed them did it with malice aforethought. That the means that we inserted in the indictment, the clubbing and stabbing in the two cases and stabbing in the third, is the means by which these individuals died. Finally, the government has the responsibility of proving to you beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, the man sitting right there, is the man that killed Colette, Kimberly, and Christian McDonald. That is the burden of proof that the government of the United States has and that is what we intend to show you at this trial. There are two terms, ladies and gentlemen, in that indictment that might be somewhat foreign to you. I don't know they are. They were foreign to me a long time ago, so they might be to you. Of course, what I tell you is not evidence and I am not empowered to instruct you as to the law. Only the judge can instruct you as to the law. And we'll stop right there tonight, fellas and ladies and gentlemen and all my good people out there. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I plan on...